You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Misfit. Sean. Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We're talking about Rome today and the pirates that plagued the late Roman Republic. This is going to be the last segment of our story of Greco-Roman piracy, and I have to be careful here. Because if I'm not, I could talk about this story forever. I really, you know, love ancient Rome. Well, not Rome itself, Rome was a nightmare, but I love the stories that come from Rome. I love these characters. I mean, they're really just the worst kind of human beings imaginable. Greedy and selfish, vain, power-hungry, amazingly short-sighted, just really terrible, truly despicable garbage people. So I want to jump right in and talk about the people who robbed those awful, terrible human beings blind. This is episode 299, Dishonorable People Who Are Not Worthy of Respect. According to Roman tradition, the city of Rome was founded on the 21st of April, 753 BC. That's the tale of Romulus and Remus, and it's a myth, but 750 BC is a good starting point. Now, the city itself was founded as an Etruscan colony, city, kind of a frontier town in Latin territory. But eventually, the Romans tossed the Etruscans out. They had kings at that point, but by 500 BC, Rome had deposed its last king and established the Roman Republic. 
This began a campaign to consolidate the Italian peninsula under Roman leadership, and in a way that had already been happening. When the Romans threw off the yoke of the Etruscans, some of the Latin cities decided to join in, but now everybody had to join in, whether they wanted to or not. By 300 BC, that campaign, the unification of the Italian peninsula, was mostly complete. There were a few holdouts up in the mountains, but nearly all of Italy was not under Roman domination, but they followed Rome's lead. And, you know, sure, that's great. We win, but it left the upper class of Rome, the patrician class, with a pretty serious dilemma. See, these Romans of senatorial rank all aspired to climb the cursus honorum. That was a fairly rigid system through which patrician men could climb the political ladder. It was often, in fact, called the ladder. It began with the lowest, most common public service jobs, and ended, for the lucky few, with the top job, the consulship. But before a man could even be allowed to step foot on the ladder to take that first job, he had to serve for several years in the army. But of course, Rome did not have a standing army. Whenever they were at war, they would just raise an army, which means that if all of these young men of senatorial rank who had ambitions to climb the cursus honorum, if they were to do so, they needed a war. And now all of their neighbors were allies. So Rome had to look farther afield. They cast their eyes all around the Mediterranean, but their options were limited. Up to the north, you've got the Alps, making passage into the rest of Europe pretty difficult. And beyond the Alps, you have the Gauls and the Germans. And the Romans were terrified of the Gauls and the Germans. Down to the south, the island of Sicily was not yet under Roman control, and it looked like a prime target. However, across the Mediterranean was the state of Carthage, and they had a controlling interest in Sicily. That was a bear that the Romans were not yet ready to anger if they could help it. The best candidates were to the east, just across the Adriatic, just northwest of the Kingdom of Macedonia. There are two kingdoms here worth talking about. Right next door to Macedon, there was Epirus, and then north of that, still along the coast, was Illyria. Rome wanted them both. First up came Epirus. Epirus was a civilized, well-settled Hellenistic kingdom. They had treaties with Rome that prevented Roman ships or soldiers from entering their territory, including their waters, and they didn't really have any problems with pirates. But Rome needed a reason to invade. That's a causus belli. That was the law. You couldn't invade without one. So one of the consuls for 282 BC, a man named Publius Cornelius Dolabella, raised a fleet of ten ships and an army of a few thousand men. Now, the sources differ here. In one version, the good consul decided to go sightseeing. Just a friendly little vacation to a lovely seaside villa with 10,000 of his closest friends. In response, the Epirans attacked and sank four of his ships. That's the older version, 
and pretty clearly it was not true. I mean, sightseeing with an army, it's not even a good cover story. So the later version, which was post-hoc propaganda to legitimize the invasion of a sovereign nation, well, that version involved pirates. Pirates that attacked that fleet of ten ships. A fleet that was, you know, just passing by, not doing anyone any harm, certainly not trespassing in your territorial waters. Which was a better story. Either way, though, it led to the Roman invasion of Epirus. Now, that was Rome's first overseas war, and it really didn't go great. Not for either side. The king of Epirus was named King Pyrrhus, and he met the Romans at the Battle of Asculum. Pyrrhus won the engagement, but at the cost of basically his whole army. King Pyrrhus said of this victory, quote, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. End quote. That's the origin of the term, a Pyrrhic victory. So King Pyrrhus abandoned Epirus. He let the Romans have it. He knew that they would gather another army, and he would be unable to stand up to them. Instead, King Pyrrhus and his court and his remaining soldiers sailed to Sicily. There they put themselves right in the middle of a bit of a civil war that was brewing, which involved the Carthaginians. And this brings us to the First Punic War. Now, we're not really going to talk about the Punic War here. Those were struggles between navies and armies, not too many pirates there. But once that first Punic War was over, Rome turned her eyes back to the east. And this time we get some real pirates. The kingdom of Illyria was less a kingdom and more a confederation. They call it a confederated monarchy. However, throughout the 230s BC, while Rome was busy with Carthage, King Agron of Illyria was attempting to consolidate his kingdom. And he did okay, but not great. There were a lot of people in Illyria who wanted nothing to do with this new consolidated kingdom. So they took to their ships. These rebels attacked the king's vessels, but also ships that were coming out of Epirus, which belonged to Rome, and Greece, and even Italy itself. At one point, a fleet of Illyrian pirates sacked the Roman city of Brundisium in southeast Italy. Now, these were pirates. They were rebels against their king, who had no nation. They spent their days raiding and capturing ships with zero state authority. These pirates even went so far as to capture a port city in what had formerly been part of Illyria to use as their pirate base. That was the city of Phoenice. It was right on the border between Illyria and the Roman province in Epirus. The later Roman historian Polybius wrote of these Illyrian pirates, quote, For some time it had been the custom of these people to prey upon vessels sailing from Italy, and at this moment a number of them, operating independently from the Illyrian fleet, attacked Italian traders. Some of these they robbed, some murdered, and a large number were carried off into captivity. In the past, the Roman government had always ignored complaints about the Illyrians, 
But now, as more and more people approached the Senate on this subject, they appointed two commissioners to travel to Illyria and inquire into what was happening. End quote. These two commissioners found that one big thing had happened. King Agron had died, and his wife, Queen Tuta, took the throne. Now, I want to be clear about something here. The Romans hated women. And sure, they'd wax poetic about the honor and nobility and dignity and beauty of the Roman woman, but, you know, that only really counts when the Roman woman was behaving herself. Means lying on her back, having kids, and keeping her mouth shut. The Romans weren't crazy about the idea of monarchy in general, but a queen was fine, as long as she was married to a king. When a woman ruled on her own, independently, well, that was just unnatural. When those two Roman emissaries arrived at the court of Queen Tuta, they were less than respectful to her. The exact nature of their insults aren't recorded, but we can imagine what they said. The ancient Romans had this notion about how a woman in power was able to motivate her people. How a queen might be able to motivate her generals, or pirate captains. I think we all know what I'm getting at here, right? If you don't get it, well, I'll spell it out for you. I'm saying that she would hand out a big bag of pearls. And you can understand how a pair of condescending foreign emissaries coming to your court and insinuating that you were handing out bags of pearls willy-nilly, well, how that might be deeply insulting. When those Roman emissaries left, they were happened upon by a pirate ship. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not these were regular pirates or pirates who were, in fact, under the employ of the queen. Either way, the Roman emissaries did not survive. The war that followed was called the Illyrian War, the First Illyrian War, and if I'm being honest, it really wasn't designed to claim a tiny patch of coastline that was tactically and economically irrelevant. The Romans already held Epirus, which was much more important. Instead, though, the Romans sent messengers to all the rulers and all of the petty kings all around Greece. All of them who had, at some point in their career, had to deal with Illyrian pirates. One by one, these rulers agreed to allow the Romans to establish maybe a, a small port on their coastline. Just enough to house a garrison and some ships to defend against piracy. Now, no one was willing to let the Romans build a barracks inside their capital city. But outside the walls, well, it might actually be a good thing to be on good terms with the Romans. And of course, it was. The wars in Epirus and Illyria were only the first of a series of conflicts that would eventually lead to the Romans controlling all of Greece. Those little port cities, well, those were a foothold, but the states in which the Romans were allowed to build those port cities tended to fare pretty well. Which brings us to an important year in the history of Roman expansion in the Mediterranean. 146 B.C. In 146 BC, the Romans put the final, final nail in the decades-long Punic Wars. 
they'd defeated Carthage for the last time. Now, North Africa wasn't theirs entirely. There were other small enclaves to defeat, but North Africa was theirs. In that same year, they defeated the king of Macedonia, so nearly all of Greece fell under Roman hegemony as well. The Mediterranean was almost a Roman lake, but not quite. Egypt was still ruled by the Ptolemaic dynasty, and then the coasts of Anatolia and the Levant were complicated. I've tried, and failed several times, to write out a concise description of Anatolia circa about 146 BC. So, we're going to scratch most of that. Here's what we need to know. There are a ton of relatively small kingdoms dotting the coasts of Anatolia. For example, Pergamon. Pergamon controlled the Hellespont. That's where Alexander the Great crossed into Asia. It was an important crossing. But there were so many others, like Bithynia, or Armenia, or Lycia. There's, I mean, there's so many. Just a few years previously, all of these kingdoms, or most of them anyway, had belonged to the Seleucid Empire. But the Seleucid Empire was crumbling. So you get all of these smaller kingdoms. But by 146, there were two other empires that were gobbling up a lot of that formerly Seleucid territory. There was the Parthian Empire, which was a large Persian empire expanding out from modern-day Iran. And then there was the Kingdom of Pontus, from the shores of the Black Sea. Both of these kingdoms, as it happened, were ruled by kings named Mithridates. And... As it also happens, so was basically everywhere else in the region. If the current king was not named Mithridates, the previous one had been, or the next one would be. I mean, take your pick. Every kingdom in the region had several kings named Mithridates. This is because of a deity in the Zoroastrian religion called Mithra. Mithra was the god of covenants. In the ancient Proto-European language, a version of the word Mithra means to bind. In fact, we see a very similar word in ancient Sanskrit and the Vedic dialects. Mithra was also god of the sun, and in that respect he actually watched over all of mankind all the time. The other gods in the Zoroastrian religion were busy, you know, doing stuff, but he was watching all the time. As a consequence of this, when people who followed Zoroastrianism prayed, they almost always did so to Mithra, because it was Mithra who knew what they were going through and might be able to do something about it. You can see why a king might want to associate himself with this particular deity. But then there's this other kind of separate thing, a cult of Mithra. And historians still are divided over whether or not this Zoroastrian god and this cult of Mithra are, in fact, worshipping the same deity. I'm inclined personally to think that they were. See, the cult of Mithra was a mystery cult, as they're called. A little bit taboo, very secretive, and supposedly initiates were the only group that fully understands the divine mystery of whoever the god happens to be. In this case, I think, and I'm by no means an expert, but it seems like the cult of Mithra are saying, sure, the Zoroastrians are doing their thing, but we really understand what Mithra is all about. 
Now, we know that this mystery cult would eventually spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Mithraism was especially prominent among the soldiery of the Roman Empire, but as near as anyone can tell, it started in Cilicia, in southwest Anatolia. Mithra was the god of the pirates. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The scourge of Cilician piracy began with a rebellion against the Seleucid control of Syria. The Seleucids and the Egyptians had for years now been struggling over the region, and a local warlord raised an army, as well as a navy, to attempt to carve out his own little Syrian kingdom. Now this sort of thing was not unheard of. There were often buffer states between two powerful kingdoms that often did pretty well, As a buffer state, it was neutral ground, so it allowed for trade between those two powerful kingdoms and sometimes made those buffer states pretty wealthy. But this warlord was not successful. His rebellion failed. His armies disbanded, but his navy did not. Instead, they retreated to a little stretch of coastline right where the Levant curves into the coast of Anatolia. That's Cilicia. And these rebels kept the fight up for years. They captured Seleucid ships and raided Seleucid settlements. All the while, the Egyptians and the Romans were happy to see their biggest rival in the region getting their teeth kicked in. But as the Seleucid Empire diminished and fell into nothingness, the Cilician pirates grew in number. And these new recruits to their ranks were not politically motivated rebels against a king. They were motivated by plunder. And when we say plunder, we mean people. You know, sure, food, treasure, various and sundry goods, but the real money was in people. The Cilician pirates would kidnap people from all over the eastern Mediterranean. Greek, Roman, Egyptian, they didn't care. 
but they would sell them almost exclusively at Crete. See, Crete had this thriving slave market, thanks in large part to pirates like those from Cilicia. Slavers from Rome or Greece, or really anywhere else, would go to Crete to buy as many human beings as possible at bargain basement prices. Then they'd take them home and sell them to landowners or whoever at a healthy profit. It was a good reason for the Roman authorities to turn a blind eye on these Cilician pirates. You know, let's say that you are the head of a rich patrician family in Rome, over the past couple of generations, you've been acquiring a great deal of new land. See, the plebs who were busy fighting your wars all over the Mediterranean, well, they often lost their farms while they were off fighting. Their wives and children were sold into slavery to pay off their debts, and now you own their farm. And you need people to work that land, so what are you going to do? I mean, presumably you could hire the farmer and his family. But, you know, you'd have to pay him a wage, treat them fairly, and that's just a huge hassle. Or you could just buy some slaves over in Crete and bam, problem solved. I mean, who cares about the plebs anyway? It's not like they're the literal lifeblood of your nation, the people who actually do all the fighting in your wars. You could just hire slaves to do everything that those plebs used to do. The world's going to be a much better place when we get rid of them entirely. This, I don't think anybody ever said out loud that, yeah, why don't we just get rid of the plebs, you know, get rid of the middleman here and actually just own the labor. But it was happening, and it was a bad idea. It was short-sighted, greedy, and definitely the direction in which Rome was heading. The people, you know, the common people the salt of the earth of Rome, well, they didn't have any earth left. Almost all the land, the, you know, decent land, on the Italian peninsula had been snapped up by a handful of aristocratic families. But it's not like every patrician in the Republic was blind to what was happening and the problems it was causing. This was, for example, the era of the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. Those two men were land reformers, primarily, but there was also an element of social reform, and their critics, which were many and very conservative, their critics believed they were revolutionaries, men who were out to overthrow the Republic in favor of their own kingdom. So the Gracchi brothers were killed by the Senate, which means that, in the end, nothing changed. Nothing got better. In fact, things got a whole lot worse. The king of Pergamon died without an heir. Remember the kingdom that controlled the Hellespont, where Alexander crossed into Asia. Well, the now-dead king of Pergamon hated the man who was most likely to snap up his crown, Mithridates of Pontus. So, he left his kingdom to Rome in his will. And that's a lot of land. Not the best land, but good enough. You've got a land crisis back in Rome. Tens of thousands of citizens with nothing to do, no land to farm, and no one to hire them because there are so many slaves. So suddenly, boom, huge piece of land. What do you do with it? 
Do you parcel it out to the best and brightest among your citizenry who can turn it into good, workable farmland, or do you do what the Senate did? Do you keep it for yourselves, parcel it out among your close crowd of cronies, and buy a bunch more slaves to work it? The Roman Senate... I hesitate to say that they deserve everything that's going to happen to them. No, no, I don't. They do. They're bad. They're dumb. Everything they do was a failure and a mistake. The next major reformer to try to fix these problems was a man named Gaius Marius. Now, he was a general, first and foremost, and his reforms initially came from the military. Rome was facing an invasion from the Gauls, so he had a lot of power in the Roman army, and he reformed how that was to be organized. The big deal here was he was going to grant land to soldiers after their tour of duty was up, a, a move that might help fix the crisis that was about to boil over in Rome, a crisis that everybody knew was coming. But Gaius Marius also sent somebody to deal with the pirates. His name was Marcus Antonius, and he was made the Praetor of Asia. That's what they're calling the former Kingdom of Pergamon now. The details here are sketchy, but Antonius probably actually led the expedition to oust the pirates in Cilicia, and probably died in doing so. The expedition was not a success, but it did yield some positive political results for the Roman Republic. The fleet he raised traveled to places like Crete and Rhodes and brought them into the Roman fold, not by conquest, but by offering Roman protection against the pirates. But there was an even bigger prize. The Ptolemaic Egyptian kingdom essentially ceded their dominion over the eastern Mediterranean to Rome. They were having some pretty big political crises of their own, and they didn't really have the resources to deal with the pirates. So when Rome came in and said, hey, we're going to take care of this, the Egyptians didn't try to stop them. And thus Rome virtually had the Mediterranean in its back pocket. Now, that first expedition to get rid of the pirates was a failure, and there's some debate about whether or not the next proconsular authority in the region, the next praetor in Asia, whether or not ousting the pirates was part of his writ as governor. The Roman Senate sent a man named Lucius Cornelius Sulla to be the praetor of Asia, and they made him the proconsul, which is kind of the military dictator of Cilicia, which seems like pretty clear-cut evidence that, yeah, get rid of the pirates, but some further investigation by much better scholars than myself would suggest that he was there to deal with other matters. A, a nearby city that was kind of in the Seleucid, it doesn't matter. He probably wasn't actually there to deal with the pirates. But Sulla is a name that, for those of us who have heard the name before, it's a name that should send a shiver down your spine. Sulla came up in the military, serving under Gaius Marius for a number of years. In an African campaign, he earned a reputation for daring personal heroics and an almost suicidal bravery. In the war with the Cimbri and the Teutons, those invaders from Gaul we talked about, 
he earned a reputation as a, an impeccable battle commander. Sulla was very much a rising star and a threat to Marius. And maybe Sulla had plans to deal with the Cilician pirates, but whether or not he did, he didn't have time to implement them, because war was breaking out back in Italy. The other cities of Italy, the Italian allies, were fed up with their treatment from Rome. The biggest problem was their military service. See, Rome just didn't have enough citizens, enough land-owning citizens, to fill their ranks anymore. And owning land was a prerequisite to serving in the military. If the patrician class wasn't taking all their land, they'd be fine. And this is a big part of what the Marian reforms were intended to solve, but that was still going to take a couple of years to finish up. So right now, the Roman Republic was relying almost entirely on the Italian allies to fill their ranks. But of course, those Italian allies were not citizens of Rome. They didn't get a say in who was in charge, so they didn't get a say in when they went to war. They were, one and all, fed up. So they rebelled against Rome. Obviously, because this ruling class is just so good at what they do. The war that followed is called the Social War, and it really only exasperated the tensions between Sulla and his former commander, Gaius Marius. The following couple of decades, even after the social war ended, were embroiled in civil war, mostly between Marius and Sulla. In the end, Sulla won. Well, Marius won, and then he died, and then the Marian cause fell apart and Sulla won. Throughout all of this, pirate activity in the Mediterranean did not diminish, but they did find a patron for their piratical activities. King Mithridates of Pontus. He was, perhaps more than any other power in the region, a threat to Rome. He gathered a coalition of other Asian leaders into an anti-Roman alliance, and that coalition included nearly all the Cilician pirates. They weren't quite a navy, but they all agreed to not attack friendlies and focus their attentions on Rome. And it was right about this time, here in 75 BC, that the Cilician pirates captured Julius Caesar. So let's take a step back and look at what happened here. After Sulla took command of Rome, he began a campaign of proscription. He ordered hundreds of men executed and put a price on the heads of a thousand more. Nearly all of these men were among the senatorial class of Rome. Those that weren't were among the most wealthy men of Rome. So, when Julius Caesar and his triumvirate come to power, there really aren't very many men capable of opposing them. Sulla killed the most formidable men in the Senate. But for now, that's neither here nor there. For now, Sulla added Gaius Julius Caesar, a young man, really still just a teenage boy, to the prescription list. But his family argued so forcefully for him to be spared that Sulla relented. That's when he supposedly uttered the famous line, in that man go a thousand Mariuses. But Caesar's head was quite literally off the chopping block. However, he wasn't going to push his luck. He decided to leave Rome for a while and joined an expedition to Bithynia. 
Now, Bithynia is the kingdom that, at the time, controlled the Bosporus. That's the strait that connects the Black Sea to, eventually, the Greater Mediterranean. At the time, there was a tiny little village on the Bosporus called Byzantium. That's not where Caesar was going, though. Eventually, he found his way to the court of the king of Bithynia, and the king of Bithynia apparently took a liking to the young man and took him to bed. According to some sources, this was Julius Caesar's first sexual encounter. For years, for really the rest of his life, Caesar's enemy would throw this back in his face, calling him the Queen of Bithynia. Part of the reason, though, that it was so easy to make these slanders stick was because Caesar kind of lingered around the court at Bithynia. Sulla gave up power in 80 BC, and then he died in 78 BC, but Caesar didn't leave Bithynia until 75. But it was on that trip, on the voyage across the Aegean Sea, that his ship was captured by pirates. Now, Roman aristocrats were not going to be sold at a slave market. They were worth a lot more if they were ransomed. And that's what they intended to do with Caesar. But when the young man learned what they intended to ask for in their ransom, Caesar laughed at them. He said he was worth way more than that and demanded that they double it. Which is crazy. I mean, that's a crazy thing to do. But it earned a lot of respect from the pirates. You know, it was a bold move. Caesar stayed with the pirates for a couple of months while he was waiting for his ransom to come in, and during that time he managed to charm the pirates that had captured him. For a while he acted like their commander, you know, ordering them around, and that didn't go well at first. But eventually... Caesar won them over. He participated in all of their games, winning feats of strength and agility and speed, that kind of thing. And they liked the kid. He was smart. He was funny. He was charming. At one point, though, Caesar composed a poem. And he read that poem aloud to his captors, and they didn't care for it. They, in fact, jeered and booed at the performance, which was typical for someone who doesn't like a poem you're reading. It's how you express yourself after the fact. Caesar took offense, though. He called them dull barbarians and informed the pirates that when he was free, he was going to come back, capture them, and have them all crucified. And of course, the pirates thought this was hilarious. You know, look at this dumb kid saying he's going to crucify us. They laughed at him and thought they were laughing with him, but Caesar was serious. Once Caesar was freed, his ransom in the hands of the pirates, he sailed for Athens, where he raised a fleet and chased the pirates down. He captured them, took them back to the mainland, and had them all crucified. Not only that, he got his money back, with interest, and a new ship. And that's not the only success that a Roman enjoyed during the era of the pirates. Now, a lot of what we know about the Cilician pirates from this era comes from the pen of Cicero. And Cicero hated pirates with a burning passion. I got the title for today's episode. Dishonorable people who are not worthy of respect. That's a line written by Philip de Souza in Piracy in the Greco-Roman world in regard to how Cicero views the pirates. He calls them evil, dishonorable people 
who are not worthy of respect. So, you know, you should take everything he says about the pirates with a grain of salt, but he's also our best source on all of this. He writes of this period, quote, One man, Publius Servilus, captured alive more pirates than all the previous commanders put together. And when did he ever deny to anyone the pleasure of seeing a captured pirate? On the contrary, he displayed the most enjoyable spectacle of captive enemies in chains to all and sundry. And so they came from all around, not just from the towns through which the pirates were being led to behold the sight. End quote. That Publius Servilus made kind of a traveling menagerie out of the thing. You know, he'd have these pirates decked out like the most notorious villains in the world. I mean, imagine it in London, 1720. You've got, say, Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Calico Jack, Mary Reed, and Bonnie, all of them dressed up to the nines to look as villainous as possible, all of them in chains and cages being paraded through the streets of London. That's gonna draw a crowd. And it drew a hell of a crowd here, in ancient Rome. When they finally reached their destination, and the people of Rome got a proper look at these pirates, they were lined up along the roads leading out of the city on crucifixes. It's reminiscent of an event that hasn't happened yet during the Servile War against Spartacus. The war on the pirates is far from over. In fact, it's really just heating up, getting to its hottest point. But here's the thing. That's a big story. I tried to do this in a single episode. I really, really wanted to begin our next era of piracy. You know, the golden age of piracy. I wanted to begin that at episode 300. Here we are at episode 299, and the story's not done. So, I hope you'll join me next time for episode 299-2, Pompey and the Pirates. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or just recommended the show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I've got one that's pretty on topic here. Ancient History Fangirl. It's a fantastic podcast about ancient history. Much of the stuff we've been talking about here today. In much more detail. You can find them at airwavemedia.com. Once again, remember to go on over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave to take that brief survey. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly... Thank you for listening.
time has come now to bid him goodbye. For at first light this morn, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.